0: for nearly two decades. The award-winning Your Financial Editor Program on 930 WFMD. News from the worlds of business and finance with your financial editor, Chris
1: Murray. Welcome to another edition of the Your Financial Editor Program right here on Free Talk Radio, 930 WFMD at WFMD.com. And as a podcast on iTunes, I am Chris Murray, your host. Uh, Thanks so much for being with us today. I appreciate it. Good program laid out for you. Some really interesting top stories a little bit of economic data, and then joining me in just a little bit, Mr. Brent Sadler, 26-year uh, Navy career. Uh, he uh, has a lot to share, you know, from the nuclear-powered submarines he was on to being a military diplomat in Asia. Uh, he graduated with honors from the United States Naval Academy, um, really has a, accomplished a, a lot, and uh, put a piece out this week called um, rebuilding America's military, the United States Navy. So we're going to be talking about just where uh, we are in that uh, goal, that that feat, if you will, and the importance of it. You know, we see it becoming more and more important um, every day, especially when you look at what's going on in the uh, South China Seas and uh, you know the the tensions over there. Um, and Navy is going to be uh, our Navy is going to be uh, an extremely important part of that going forward. So we'll be talking about that. The tie in, it's simple as always say, if you don't have national security, you don't have uh, financial and economic security. So we're going to be making sure that we're up to speed on what really is going on with rebuilding our military, the United States Navy in particular. Uh, Really tough week this week, weather, as far as weather goes. Um, You know, we saw the energy market being hit with a perfect storm in the state of texas because of that extreme uh weather and you know it lingered and it's just uh, it's been a a real problem so it's it's a a lot of hardship for those folks but you know that spilled over to us as well as consumers because you had uh after those prices were surging um you know they they were impacting oil and natural gas and the electricity markets and that like i said will trickle down to the u.s consumer uh we saw that the uh, permian basin about 15 percent, or nearly one million barrels per day, of uh, oil production was offline. About 40 to 50 percent of natural gas production was frozen, and about seven percent of the nation's oil refineries are uh, or were offline, leading to higher gasoline prices. So you probably saw that at the pump. And then you saw, of course, these big jumps in uh, the cost of all of these uh, commodities. Is it's it's amazing to think of what happened price wise in the state of Texas. As for electricity in the state, spot electricity prices in Texas uh, West Hub spiked above the grid's nine thousand dollars per megawatt hour cap. Nine thousand dollars. Power typically cost twenty five dollars per megawatt hour, so it went from twenty five dollars to nine thousand um, dollars. The grid almost crashed. Uh, apparently, if they hadn't shut it down when they did by choice, it would have. Uh, there would have been a major meltdown, and people um, may have been without power for months. So, uh, really tough for those folks. Unfortunately, some souls were lost um and uh we just have to keep them uh you know in our prayers that they get through this uh this weather along with other states that are having the same not as bad but having weather problems um and as i mentioned it's going to impact energy prices we already saw energy prices go up as soon as um, biden started talking about you know stopping the uh the pipeline um and and some other things uh you know suspending the leasing uh, uh, agreements for uh, energy exploration, things of that nature. You saw the prices already starting to go up. And then um, that translates into those higher prices I mentioned at the uh, gasoline pump or if you're heating your home with heating oil, whatever the case might be. The real shame, uh, the people that are hurt the most are the uh, folks on the lower Uh, income rung and also those that are living on a fixed income that when things like this happen and they their energy costs go up, they have to make some tough decisions. So where, you know, these politicians say they're looking out for uh, middle America and, um, you know, the little guy that couldn't be further from the truth and their actions prove it really a shame. Also this week, another uh, commodity was uh, off to the races as far as uh, price hikes. Lumber prices have shot to record uh, highs, uh, really define the normal winter slowdown in wood product sales. So that would be, I think, a sign that uh, the virus building boom is just going to continue to roll right into uh, the rest of this um, winter and especially into the spring. We have a piece of uh, data uh, that I'll share with you in just a little bit that uh I was reviewing this week but records have been set across species products and various grades of uh, of lumber it has never cost more to buy uh, what they call OSB which is used for walls uh, also southern yellow pine which was you know that's favored for decks and and such Um, And ponderosa pine, which is a popular uh, type of wood for cabinetry and interior trim, things of that nature. So, um, you know, last week, the random lengths framing lumber composite price rose to nine hundred sixty six dollars per thousand board feet. So that was above the nine hundred fifty five dollars that was set in September. Uh, Lumber futures are up close to 50 percent over the last few weeks, and um, it doesn't show any signs of easing, as I mentioned. You know, you you have people that are stuck at home, uh, not by choice, and um, they undertook some home improvement projects. Also, you have builders. uh, They face just a stampede to the suburbs and to rural areas brought on by um, people looking for more living space and they wanted to get away from all the riots and the violence and the burning, et cetera. So uh you're seeing that that exodus out to uh to those other areas. Um you know, we talk about the virus, 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 and it's so unfortunate and again what China unleashed, not just here in the United States, but on the entire world, is so unacceptable. And then for them too, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, try to uh say that it it was our fault. Even Mentioning Fort Detrick at times. So, um, you know, they really need a good poke in the eye over this. Hopefully we'll find out somehow to do it. Um, We'll have to wait and see on that, of course. But the virus hasn't been uh, bad, of course, for some industries, some certain uh, companies. Uh, A slice of the trucking industry, which, of course, is critical to retail and industrial supply chains, is really on, um, you know, a roll as the virus-driven boom in online shopping uh, is reshaping uh, how things are distributed here in the United States. I'll give you a good example. I saw this week Old Dominion Freight Line. um, They're expanding their businesses to try to make their supply chains more nimble to catch up to that consumer demand that's out there that's rapidly been shifting. So they're the second largest operator in the sector after FedEx's FedEx freight unit. Uh, This month they said that it had added uh, nine service centers to its U.S. network since the start of 2020 and planned several additions this year. Uh, Operators in the highly competitive sector are benefiting as businesses scramble to meet surging, uh, you know, the e-commerce demand from shoppers out there who are ordering everything from paper towels to furniture online these days. So it showed up in the bottom line uh, when Old Dominion was reporting their operating income and, um, you know, things of that nature for the fourth quarter. And some others are doing well also. And it's not just the big guys. You have some uh, some um, independent contractors out there who are doing very well uh, themselves. So there is a silver lining if you're a well-run trucking company, whether you're really big or really small – it looks like there 's a lot of opportunity and um, and and and, and that 's good for them because you know they 're working they 're getting people the things that they need, and of course they're feeling good about it because um, they 're doing a good job, a good service and they're they 're making money for it so I think it 's wonderful I think it 's a great story um, the one the one thing that 's not great I could not believe it when I started looking at this one point nine trillion dollar uh Package our money, by the way, taxpayer money, that uh, this new administration and these uh, politicians down inside the Beltway want to push through. Uh, like I said, it's 1.9 trillion. But when you start looking at um, at what they want to do, they want to extend unemployment programs through August the 29th. They're already into August, folks, with a 400 a week supplement. That's $246 billion of our money to pay people to sit home on the sofa and watch TV. It is the stupidest thing that these politicians are doing. It makes no sense. You're taking away livelihood. You're taking away a person's pride to be able to work. And you're going to reward them or control them. That's really what they're trying to do. get um, Get you hooked on that. That's sugar, right? Um, uh, also, they want to provide grants to um, uh, multi-employer pension plans and change single employer pension funding rules. So now they're not only giving out $58 billion, they want to start changing rules. I wonder who those pensions are for. Maybe like the, the cities and states that can't afford them, that are in arrears, don't have enough money, just a bailout. That's all it is. They want to expand uh, the uh, Obamacare subsidies for another couple years. That's $45 billion. Yeah, let's expand something that's proven not to work and, and does get expensive and doesn't provide the benefits you said it was going to. Um, and then just flat out $195 billion of money to state governments. And then another $155 billion to local governments, territories, and tribes. You know what's happening. They're using your money, and it's going to circle back around to end up in their political control, a whole lot of it. Uh, oh, they want to provide another $129 billion in funding for K-12 through education. What? I mean, for what? What are they doing? Half of them don't want to go back to work. They don't care that the kids are stuck at home and, you know, diminishing as far as uh, their studies go and their social skills. This is unbelievable when you look at. Uh, oh, they also want to do that for colleges and universities. Another forty billion there. Yeah, yeah, they really need a, a whole lot of help um, at the universities, right? So they're, um, you know, they're charging way too much. They're not providing half of of what they should for the money that's being paid. That's what's in that one point nine billion. Probably going to get passed trillion. Excuse me. That's probably going to get passed. Isn't that sad? all politics. Payoffs, power, controlling money. I'll tell you what some people are doing too. They're controlling their own safety. It was interesting this week. I saw that uh, Sturm Ruger is staffing up in order to meet the historic surge in firearm demand that has depleted their inventory. So the firearms maker has hired 250 employees, mostly in production, since the middle of last year to help replenish its stocks as the surge in demand caused uh, combined inventories in its warehouses and distributors to decrease by 86 percent or 290,000 units last year. Uh, Retailer inventory of Ruger also remains low. So the CEO on the earnings call this week said that they're working hard to replenish inventories throughout the distribution channel as quickly as possible so consumers can purchase the Ruger firearms that they desire. Uh, Gun demand just skyrocketed late in the first quarter of uh, 2020 last year and continued throughout the year as Americans, you know, they desired protection amid the violence that swept through cities and and other areas. So uh, Storm Ruger reported 2020 sales that were up thirty nine yeah thirty nine percent from the prior year and their net profit was up one hundred eighty percent. So again, because of um COVID, because of the um uh all the violence and the burning and looting and the murders, all that stuff that we, we saw, uh people were not just it wasn't just Sturm Ruger, right? We've heard about it. Um sales were just through the roof for pretty much everybody. So that's the other silver lining. You know, you've got these uh, firearm makers, you've got your local um, gun stores, you've got places, you know, where you see um, practicing classes that are being offered um, are are very robust as far as the activity there. So it's interesting that they're the beneficiary of um, the virus, but I think more so With the violence, Um, you know, people are just sick of it. And then when the police officers um, and professional law enforcement in general is told to stand down, um, people realize that uh, they have to protect themselves. So I wanted to let you know if you go to murrayfinancialgroup.com, the complimentary download on the homepage right now is the value of an objective opinion. Um, And you can just go to the homepage, hit that button It'll go right to your email, and then you can enjoy that and, and read through it. It's, uh, it's seven pages, so it's a pretty quick read. But I think you'll find it very uh, interesting and helpful, and that's why we do it. So uh, go to murrayfinancialgroup.com and uh, click that, and then we'll be talking about some economic data on the other side of this.
2: Kodiak, live pack, six-pack, buzz bait, big bass hung up on a hook truck muddy something funny rolled up bumping country music in the country buddy i could write the book i got a boom doc education a dirt road shirt rock dedication so yeah when it comes to my location well y'all already know where i'd be staying i'd be staying in the woods
1: Welcome back. This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com. And also uh, as a podcast on iTunes, just uh, go to iTunes and search your financial editor and it'll be there for you. And uh, we have past uh, uh, interviews there and shows for you. So uh, get a lot of feedback because of the people that are. Uh, nice enough to want to come on our program um, and and share uh, some really good information uh, with you. So and by the way, we're having that today uh, in just a little bit. My guest, uh, Mr. Brent Sadler, um, 26 year uh, career in the Navy, in the Navy, excuse me. Uh, he was on tours uh, on nuclear powered submarines, personal staff of senior defense department leaders. He was a military diplomat in Asia. We're going to be talking about rebuilding the military and the United States Navy in particular, where are we right now with that task? So we'll be talking with Mr. Sadler in just a little bit about that. Before we get to uh, Mr. Sadler, uh, we'll talk about some economic data of this week. The clear winner of this week was U.S. retail sales. Uh, They really surged in January so we saw the the value of total sales increase 5.3 percent from the prior month. According to the Commerce Department, economists were expecting just 1.1 percent. Um, so spending was across industries last month. You saw receipts up at bars and restaurants, which, of course, is one of the sectors hit hardest by the virus. Uh, the biggest increase in sales was at department stores, up over 23 percent. Electronics and appliance stores, which rose uh, close to 15 percent, even furniture stores up 12 percent. So we'll keep an eye on that and see if that proves to be the case for sure, because the prior month we saw a revision to the downside on that. Uh, We saw some uh, information this week from the housing sector. Uh, Strong buyer demand helped offset those supply chain challenges I mentioned with uh, lumber in, in particular. And also um, just in the fact that they had to deal with the surge in uh, lumber prices. So it wasn't just the delivery, but it was the pricing um, for these new single-family homes. But that confidence uh, of builders inched up one point to a reading of 84 in February, according to the latest National Association of Home Builders Housing Market Index. Um, Demand conditions remain solid due to demographics, Low mortgage rates and the again suburban shift, uh, you know, people just getting out of the city, uh, because of all the craziness and the lawlessness uh, that we see and hear about. Um, but again, according to the chief economist at the uh, NAHB, he was saying that some cooling and growth areas for residential construction in 2021. Um, We'll probably see that because of cost factors, supply change uh, issues and also regulatory risk. So how are the uh, politicians and uh, other uh, bureaucrats going to impact that uh, growth in certain areas as people, more and more people uh, leave these cities? Uh, also, we saw that housing starts actually fell more than expected in January Um, Some people are saying it's the lumber prices. Some people are saying that, you know, they were uh, kind of afraid to get into this contract that some of them have to now because the builder has to leave it uh, open ended almost so they don't get stuck with an unexpected jump in uh, lumber costs. So they're letting them know, look, if it goes up, we're going to prove it to you and then you're going to pay whatever, you know, whether they share it or split it or the customer pays for all of it. Um, Or you can just walk away, you know, and just just walk away. And I guess they'll take care of selling the house to someone else. So really crazy. But housing starts were down 6%. Um, But the good part of it was permits for future home building. Building permits were up 10.4%. So that goes to kind of show that there's going to be a lot in the pipeline um, as far as these uh, new starts getting going over the next one to two months. So that was interesting to see. Starts down, uh, but permits up very nicely. Unfortunately, um, we saw another really ugly initial jobless claims report on, um, on Thursday. The number of Americans filing for first-time unemployment benefits climbed again last week uh, as the virus continues just to tear up the labor market and trigger a high number of uh, job losses. Again, thanks, China. I appreciate that. Um, figures that were released by the Labor Department showed that 861,000 Americans filed first-time jobless claims. That was uh, much higher than economists were looking for. And also what I did not like to see is the prior week's number was revised upward by 55,000 at the Labor Department. Um, during the Obama administration, and if you listen to the program, you know, I talked about it almost every week, there was a revision and it was almost always a negative revision. Not what they originally told us, I guess, thinking, oh, you know, people are going to forget, which a lot of people do. I mean, I don't because this is what I follow these kind of things and make sure I know what's going on. But, um, it was, it was just embarrassing. To, uh, to see those revisions week after week and the, the misinformation, if you will. I sure hope that that's not what we're going to be in store for for the Biden administration is, you know, going back to that format of uh, of basically deception. So uh, we'll have to wait and see um, who gets the nod for sure as the new uh, labor secretary and uh, how they handle things. Um, also, we got minutes from the last Federal Reserve uh, meeting last month, and it just showed what we already knew that they're all in you know they're gonna keep spending billions and billions of dollars every month uh on treasuries and mortgage backed securities, et cetera, and they're gonna keep interest rates low and they're gonna use they you know whatever's in their toolbox, and um it's uh it's just gonna be more of the same more of that sugar water that uh, we were talking about. Earlier during the program, because of um, you know this uh, what they call stimulus, which is really just a Christmas list for um, a lot of people, a lot of companies, a lot of states and governments and cities that don't deserve it at all. I mean, it's uh, this moral hazard. You know, you get rewarded for doing the wrong thing um, or doing your job poorly. Uh, It makes no sense whatsoever. They should be embarrassed. Um, I don't think that. They are because they're narcissists. But um, it's really a shame to see all this unfolding. And we'll watch that $1.9 trillion package closely. I previewed some of it for you. And uh, we'll see exactly um, how much junk is in it and try to identify as much as possible. Um, Again, the uh, latest complimentary download uh, on the website is titled "The Value of an Objective Opinion." Go to MurrayFinancialGroup dot com. It's right on the home page, and just click it, and it'll go right to your uh, to your email. And enjoy it. Uh, you can you know read it online, or you can uh, on your computer, I should say, or uh, you can print it off and highlight it, and mark it up, make notes, and. And uh, put even more thought into it. And when we come back, we'll be uh, jumping into our conversation with my guest this morning, Mr. Brent Sadler. 26-year uh, Navy career, uh, all all the way from being on nuclear-powered submarines to being on staff at the Department of Defense to being a military uh, diplomat in Asia. Uh, so we're going to find out just what's going on with the rebuilding uh, of our united states military the u.s navy in particular
2: outside of this one church town there's a gold dirt road to a whole lot of nothing got a deed to the land but it ain't my ground this is god's country Pray for rain and thank him when it's falling Cause it brings the grain and the little bit of money We put it back in the plate, I guess That's why they call it God's country
1: It's your financial editor with Chris Murray On 930 WFMD <laughs> back this is chris murray your financial editor on free talk radio 930 wfmd at wfmd.com and also as a podcast on itunes just go to itunes and search your financial editor and uh, it'll pop up for you both the program today and also uh those that uh, we've uh, had in the past if you're a new uh listener hey welcome really glad to have you along Um, If you've been with us for a while, thanks for sticking around. And for all of those who have been with us since I uh, founded the program back in 1997, uh, thanks so much for your loyalty and for uh, helping us be successful. I really appreciate it. And um, another good program for you this morning. You know, even though we talk often about uh, financial, economic, uh, political issues, uh, when we talk about um, national security I always remind people the importance of understanding what's going on with national security because if you don't have it, you don't have financial security. You don't have economic security. It's it's it would be non-existent. So it's important for us to always remember um what's going on, what's important, what needs to be done going forward. And I'm very happy to have me uh join me this morning, I mean, uh Mr. Brent Sadler. He's a 26-year Navy career. A man with numerous operational tours on nuclear-powered submarines, personal staffs of senior defense department leaders, and as a military diplomat in Asia. um, He is a native Springfield, Virginian, 1994 graduate with honors from the United States Naval Academy, where he uh, earned a degree in systems engineering, which is robotics, and also uh, a minor in Japanese. Good morning, Mr. Sadler.
0: Uh, Good morning, everyone. Uh, Thank you for having me
1: on today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for taking some time to be with us. So um, the the genesis of this conversation was from a piece that uh, that you uh, uh, created this week. And and it's titled The Rebuilding uh, of America's Military. Um, And, um, you know, especially the United States Navy, which obviously, as I mentioned, all of your uh, time as a naval uh, officer, you know, you were able to. to see a lot of different things and kind of know where we are right now. I guess what I'll just start with is, can you give us um, just the current state of the military in general right now as you see it?
0: Uh, absolutely. Uh, for the last 10 years or so, I've been really involved in getting a refocus in on the Asia Pacific and our competition with China. And, and it, in the honestly, it's actually much more complex than that. If it's, If you're really looking at like real – national survival and the continued prosperity of the United States and our you know individual fiscal security, it's really a combination of China, number one, Russia uh, after that, and a global competition in the peacetime. So the question about how's our Navy, how's our military doing? Well, the last few years, we've made some serious progress on regaining our readiness and retooling our military. It's principally the Navy, But it's also, to a lesser extent, also the Air Force retooling our military for what's called great power competition or great war. This is like major state-on-state kind of warfare. For the last 20 years, since the attacks on September 11th, we've been really a military focused in on constabulary and uh, high-intensity, low-level but high-intensity, you know, counterinsurgency kind of warfare. And that's a different skill set, and that's a different focus. And so, for the last few years, the military—and I really want to go back about 2015—it starts slowly but starts to accelerate from 2017 and 8, 2018 on to start to make big investments on things like hypersonic weapons, uh, railgun, new and larger, uh, you know, uh, missiles for longer-range anti-ship missiles. So there's there's been kind of an awakening on that. Readiness is something also that's been going hand in hand, but is very easy to lose. So I, I think that's uh, where the Navy, particularly I, I kind of focus in on the Navy. The Navy the last few years has kind of had quite a knock on this, and it really was a culmination of years of priorities being focused elsewhere, but still the demands to be present for not diminishing. And and I'm talking about the collisions in 2017 with the the USS Fitzgerald and the USS McCain. Those were watershed events, and I, and I don't see the Navy going back to conditions that was that that we're behind those two. Uh, I think the Navy has really turned a corner and has actually put a lot of energy and uh, resources towards making sure our sailors are ready and that our ships uh, are manned appropriately. So,
1: so during uh, your 26-year uh, career, um, how much of a change did you personally witness? I mean, and was it positive? Was it major? Mm-hmm. Or was it a creeping type of uh, of transformation?
0: I would say it wasn't an overnight um, kind of change. I would say the the at the time that the McCain incident occurred, I was actually the senior defense official in Kuala Lumpur, so I was very much involved with the search and rescue uh, that, around that incident, and then also how we engage with our partners. But uh, what I saw when I was back working on the the CNO's per, uh, staff back in D.C. at the Pentagon was. Uh, you know, there was a, there was an awareness that we needed to get more resources, and I would say that outside of Navy, there was a willingness to do more to provide more resources to kind of address readiness shortfalls in the Navy. So I wouldn't, I, I'm not satisfied that we're that we're done. Um, we never will be. It's something always has to maintain attention on, but we're not quite where we need to be. Uh, but I would say it's been, you know, at first it was a sprint, and now it's kind of a good clip that the Navy is continuing to improve and make the investments on its readiness. Uh, again, i got to stress, it's very fragile. If, if priorities shift, if resources are, are curtailed, uh, tough choices will be made, and readiness is one of those near-term short, short investments that are easy to, to cash out on. So the, that, that dynamic hasn't changed, sadly.
1: Okay. Um, and who's behind that dynamic?
0: So at the end of the at the end of the day, it starts at the White House. I mean, the president of the United States sets his national priorities, and National Security Council will on the day-to-day interagency kind of management. So they actually really have a very significant influence on this. And I saw how this played out with the rebalance to Asia Pacific back in 2012. Uh, so with the right kind of guidance. And then quietly underneath all that, from the National Security Council, very clear articulation of what the funding priorities will be to realize those strategic or diplomatic initiatives uh, makes it more sustainable and real. When you don't have that and you don't sustain that uh, budgetary resourcing discipline underneath of all that, you, you run the risk of building a hollow force, which you, which you, a lot of people talk about from a historical situation in the Navy in the 70s or you end up running your force into the ground and it becomes so exhausted that it's not training its younger officers and sailors, and you end up with situations like the Fitzgerald and the McCain. Um, so I would say it starts at the top. It, next level is that it's at the Secretary of Defense and the Office of the Secretary of Defense for policy. And these are the folks that really kind of dictate you know, where the prioritization will be. Will we send... Navy ships to the Persian Gulf, or will we send Navy ships to the South China Sea? That's really where that decision comes, comes next. And, and the joint staff is deeply involved in that whole process, Those are General Miley and his team. Uh, all along the way, of course, the chief of naval operations is there to make sure that there's some discipline, or at least the consideration given to uh, readiness and manning requirements along the way.
1: Um, do you think the uh, stand down order by the Secretary of Defense uh, was um, needed? And uh, do you, do you have any sense of what was behind it?
0: Um, um, the stand down after the collisions, or the stand down more recently? More recently. Um, so these, ha- I, so that was actually I think driven by General Austin, well retired General Secretary Austin, uh, department wide, and. I kind of go back to, I also just recently wrote on the task force one. So this is Navy's formalized internal review and these stand downs that are intended to kind of look at internal processes. Um, As long as it doesn't go more than a few days and there's actual, you know, action that comes out the other side, um, that's kind of, I would, I would withhold any judgment as to its effectiveness is if I see any, you know, resources and any pop, you know, real, te- uh, tangible changes that come out the other side. Okay. So I, got- I guess the, my judgment is still, I'm withholding my judgment a little while longer is if, if it's actually going to be effective.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, totally, totally makes sense. I was surprised by it, but, and didn't see the, uh, the reasoning, but, um, obviously you're a lot closer to those types of situations and, uh, and monitor them. And I think that's, uh, appropriate for all of us is, uh, to kind of wait and see to, uh, to be able to make, um, you know, a a decision of our own about if it was Mm -hmm. uh, appropriate or not. Um, and, and again, you said hollow force a couple minutes ago, how easily is that, uh, seen by our adversaries? Is it something that just, we know, or do they really understand that we're, we, we may be at a current disadvantage.
0: Uh, yes. Um, so back in the sequestration, uh, I was at uh, Pacific Command in Hawaii, and, and my background mostly has been you know, watching and kind of reacting and, and driving strategy or policy vis-a-vis China. So I'll, I'll focus in on the sequest- sequestration. So there was an immediate impact for Navy, and it involved ships that were supposed to come out of the shipyard and return to operations being delayed, which has a knock-on effect. Uh, So you're not getting the ships that are in the yard doing maintenance or overhauls or modernization back out into field in time. And even though the sequester or the the financial decision may only be for like a month or two, the consequences in that production line on the shipyards can actually kind of have kind of a cascading effect to where you don't get that ship back not just a month or two delay, but it could be six months or a year in some cases. And uh, the Chief of Naval Operations at the time, General, uh, I'm sorry, Admiral Greener, uh, and all the other service chiefs testified, and they actually put dollar values uh, onto the consequences, you know, the added cost of things like sequestration. And that's, that's not that budget cuts or um, reasoned approach to making cuts is not effective. It has to be reasoned, and it has to be well thought out. Sequestration was just a straight cut, and it was immediate. Um, the other thing that happened, and you question about did our adversaries see it? And I would say our adversaries as well as our partners— so when you had ships in Yokosuka, Japan, uh, home port there for 7th Fleet, not going out to sea as often and they're moored in the port, it's, it's hard not to see that uh, because it's right there in the waterfront in downtown Yokosuka. And it's obvious when there's a lot of ships. When you only see one or two in port, now you see eight or nine, you know something's going down. And it's not a major holiday like New Year's or Christmas. It's driving the ships to be in port at the time. So it's very visible. Our Japanese partners and allies look at it and go, okay, uh, you're not out at sea and, and, and kind of doing your, your job out at sea and as, a, as an active allied member. Can we rely on you? So that starts not, it starts getting traction in capitals like Tokyo, Manila, uh, and Canberra. But the one that really, really chapped me was uh, the Chinese. So they watch it. They see that we're not going to be operating, and so they move into the void at sea. And there's lots of anecdotal evidence of of that over the years. But if you're not going to be at an atoll or in a near-disputed area, around the time of year when the weather and the fishing seasons make it most likely and the exercise routines make it more likely that that a crisis could evolve and you're not there, you've basically ceded the ground to them. So they kind of move in, and, and I'm talking about East China Sea uh, at that time in 2000, mid-2000s, but also a little bit in, you know, the island building starts during this time frame, too, in 2013-14 time frames when it starts in the South China Sea. But the other one that really used to just frustrate me was the constant responses to Chinese propaganda, and there was one cartoon in particular that really that still still resonates with me, and it, we were talking about uh, put, bringing our ships into port. Cause we didn't have the money to keep them out at sea to pay for their fuel. And there was a picture of one of our aircraft carriers in Chinese internal uh, media with with oars on it, like it was some Roman galley being rowed at sea, and that that was how we were going to get our ships out to sea without the money to, to fuel them. Um,
1: <laughs> so- yeah, I can see where that would burn a uh, burn a spot in your mind. You can't unsee that. That that would be terrible. Um, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll uh, continue our conversation with my guest this morning, Mr. Brent Sadler. Uh, we'll talk more about, on the other side of this, really, um, who we should be most concerned about as far as uh, potential uh, conflicts and, and the adversaries, our enemies out there. So stay tuned.
2: Third shot, damn. I'm in trouble. I'm a newly single man seeing double.
1: Welcome back. This is Chris Murray, your financial editor on Free Talk Radio 930 WFMD at WFMD.com and uh, as a podcast on iTunes. Just go to uh, iTunes and type in uh, your financial editor. You'll have uh, this program as well as uh, uh, other programs that are archived uh, there as well. Wrapping up our conversation with our guest this morning, Mr. Brent Sadler, 26-year Navy career man with numerous operational tours on nuclear-powered submarines, personal staffs of senior Defense Department leaders, and as a military diplomat in Asia. Um, Very successful career. His last uh, Navy assignment was China branch of Navy staff at the Pentagon. He uh, is a lifelong uh, Virginian, and um, he is married with two daughters. And, uh, you you know, Mr. Sadler, I was uh, talking right before the break there about um, who we should fear the most, I guess. Uh, Who is it? So, um, you know, number one is
0: China. I mean, in comprehensive competition, um, as well as military capabilities, and their their savviness of using the systems and the institutions out there that have served us and American citizens so well for our prosperity. They know how to. They, they know they 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 know how to use those those institutions very well, and to change them gradually without us reacting, or even in militarily kind of changing facts on the ground, as we've seen in South Tennessee, without triggering a, a response, an effective response from us until it's too late. Um, so I, I think China's number one because they are very good at what they do. They have tremendous capacity, industrial and economic capacities, unlike anything that we had to deal with uh, as a nation before. And I go back to even before World War II. This is, this is, this is unique and different. Uh, the next is, and you always have it in the back of your mind, is the, the Russians. Uh, while they are a fraction of what they were of the Soviet times, and the Soviets were a fraction of our capacities throughout the Cold War, they always are kind of a spoiler. And just as you might get attention on something bad the Chinese are doing, the Russians kind of have a tendency to pop up and distract you. So you kind of have to be ready for both. Uh, So I, I would say China, don't ever take your eye off of but don't allow, the, at the same time, don't allow the Russians to be an effective
1: distraction. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. I can remember, I guess it was probably now 15 years ago, uh, just one day, I don't know why I remember it, on, um, on C-SPAN, and there was a, a four-star general, I believe he was an Army man, and um, when he was at, well, no, he was a, uh, he was a Navy uh, general, actually, because when he was asked, I think, about uh, what his biggest concern was, and I think he was getting ready to retire, he said at that time um, that it was the development of the Chinese Navy and just the um, how aggressive they were with what they were doing and what they were planning, and it sounds like that came to fruition.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, if your listeners uh, really have got the time, there's an annual report that's like it's, it's well over 100 pages, so it's not an easy read, but inside that, The DOD, since 2000, has been detailing and and analyzing the growth of the Chinese military diligently. And it's, you know, for those of us that have been watching this, it's no real surprise. But uh, this last year, the Chinese surpassed some size of their fleet, um, and that's just their navy. If you add in their Coast Guard and you add in this other, like, maritime militia, uh, it's actually hundreds of more ships in capacity than we could muster if we took everything we had, and and while it's kind of surprising to some to hear it in the last year, it's been a gradual, methodical approach. So yeah, uh, he's right. Uh, we haven't really bent the curve on shipbuilding and you know investments in the navy. And, and there's one kind of myth I I definitely hear a lot or misconception and that is that we can't afford to compete with the Chinese and the Russians. I, I, I vehemently disagree with that. Uh, we are a very prosperous nation, and we're spending un, you know, just over 3% of our GDP on defense. During the Cold War, and our economy was booming in the 80s, we were spending well over 6% of our GDP. So I don't subscribe to the notion that we can't afford it. And quite frankly, it's a competition that we have to engage uh, the consequences for my children and, every, and your listeners' children is that our prosperity that we've grown accustomed to, just to keep it where it's at, becomes in jeopardy. Because we would relinquish the maritime domain, trade, and all of the principles, the rules-based order you hear about that governs free trade and, and market relations and diplomacy, will no longer be something that we have an active voice in anymore. You'll yeah. we'll have to follow someone else's. And that may like that. We don't. Would it be appropriate that that's in Beijing? I hope not, because I don't think the track record is very good on that historically.
1: Yeah, for sure. And again, I don't accept that uh, that uh, myth either. Um, And we know what we've done in the past, as you referenced and what we need to do in the future. Um, And thank you to DOD, those folks, the professionals there that, you know, have been following that and do make that uh, type of document available to those of us who, you know, who care and want to know what's going on. Thank you uh, for taking time to join us this morning for the piece that you wrote. Uh, Again, folks, um, it's titled Rebuilding America's Military, the United States Navy. Uh, Go to heritage.org and um you can find it there uh, our guest Mr. Brent Sadler is a senior fellow for naval warfare and advanced technology there and he penned this and he's been our guest this morning really interesting stuff Mr. Sadler I appreciate it I appreciate your time and uh, we'll be following your work going forward
0: thank you again for the chance to talk with you all
1: today yes sir uh, enjoy the rest of your weekend uh, unfortunately we're out of time folks so we'll wrap uh, wrap things up here and um uh, just as a reminder, um, we'll um, talk to you on the Morning News Express, five fifty six fifty seven fifty with Bob Miller and Ryan Hedrick. And then I'll be back here next Saturday for another edition of the Your Financial Editor Program. This is Chris Murray wishing you and your family financial success.
2: Simple man, ain't no other way to say it. I lay my cards on a t- Past editions
0: of this program are available in the audio vault at WFMD.com. A service of partners in care. Upscale resale boutique in the Willow Tree Plaza. News Radio 930. WFMD Frederick.
1: A connoisseur media radio station. 7 o'clock.